Hello and welcome to Critical Theory in Context, the podcast of the Center for Humanities and Social Change in Berlin. My name is Christian Schmidt. I'm an academic senior advisor at the Humanities and Social Change Center in Berlin. And I'm very happy to present today this second episode of our podcast series. In this series, different members of our team will have conversations with theorists and activists on various topics that we are engaged with at our center. The ecological crisis has, of course, become one of the most pressing problems today. And Rahel Yegi talked about it with Nancy Fraser in our last episode. In this episode, we are looking at another aspect of the ecological question, the far right's response to the climate crisis. In the 1980s and 90s, the far right had also developed an ecological branch, which fitted very well to the overall approach to protect the homeland. But with climate change denial, this might have changed. So I'm very happy to be joined today by Lisa Benoit from the Zetkin Collective and Andreas Meyer, who recently published a book together on the very topic, White Skin, Black Fuel on the Danger of Fossil Fascism. Andreas Malm is Associate Senior Lecturer in Human Ecology at Lund University. For many years, he has been strongly engaged in the environmental movement and has become one of its most prominent theoreticians. Lisa Benoit is an independent researcher. Her research focuses on the French far-right and Korean nationalism more generally. Today, we will discuss what fossil fascism is and how dangerous it can become. What are the positions of the far right on the ecological crisis and how have they evolved historically? How does the right wing ideology operate on issues of ecology? Yet, we will also dig a little bit deeper and talk about the current trends that may enable fossil fascism. And we will not leave out the question, what lessons can we draw from this analysis to counter this danger more effectively? As Andreas emphasizes at some point in the conversation, the far right mobilizes its resources that come from racist structures and they try to sell them to the political movement, promoting a particular perception of the crisis, always tying it to white ethno-nationalism. And Lise emphasizes that therefore one of the key messages of the book is, I quote, that we need to join forces between anti-racist, anti-fascist and climate movements around the theme of climate justice and in opposition to this common enemy that is the far right. This is Critical Theory in Context. Our guests today are Andreas Malm and Lise Bernoin from the Zetkin Collective. And now we dive into the struggles and crises of the present with white skin, black fuel and the danger of fossil fascism. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Lise. Hello, Andreas. Great to have you here at Critical Theory in Context. It's our second podcast, and uh, it's great to have uh, both of you to speak about uh, the new book by Zetkin Collective and Andreas Malm. Black fuel, white skin, on the danger of fossil fascism. So to start our conversation today, I would like to speak a bit about the topic of your book, fossil fascism. One of the main theses is that fossil fascism is something is we really need to understand now, 
because it's gaining momentum, it's becoming more and more dangerous, and uh, we have to do something about it. So my first question would be, what exactly do you understand by fossil fascism? Well, I think that when we speak about fossil fascism, that's still something that lies in the future as a potential danger. It's not something that has matured, uh, materialized as an actual reality yet. It's just that we have tendencies working in that direction. And a simplified definition of it, I think, could be that fossil fascism is the aggressive defense of privileges called into question in the climate crisis, combined with systematic state violence against people defined as the enemies of the white nation, so various types of non-white others. And uh, this kind of fossil fascism can develop, we argue, in a, a few different ways. Uh, one would be if, if there was a serious mitigation crisis with um, fossil fuels called into question and rapid transition away from them on the agenda. Then the far right could emerge as the sort of uh, bulwark that defends business as usual and redirects state violence against uh, enemies of the white nation. Or it could be in an adaptation crisis where some impact of the climate crisis itself hits very hard and it causes a serious disruption in social life. And then the far right could arise as a political pole fortifying uh, privileges that are thrown into doubt by, by events. Obviously, these are speculative scenarios and we draw a little bit on climate fiction to outline them further, but it's not so difficult to take current trends and extrapolate them into uh, scenarios like this. Lise, do, do you want to add something? Yeah, so drawing on what you said, Andreas, uh, fossil fascism is indeed a scenario. But what we also say is that the two concepts that are underlying this idea of fossil fascism are very much existing right now already. And those are first palingenetic ultranationalism. So we draw on uh, Griffin's definition. And this is the idea that um, there needs to be a rebirth of the nation and of the greatness of the nation. And uh, this can be exemplified by slogans such as make America great again, but also make Europe great again. A slogan that I saw as it is a few days ago, just like that. And the other concept behind is the idea of defense. So the idea that this nation needs to be defended against historical enemies. And this can be summarized overall if we were to give a short definition of fossil fascism, and I'm taking this from the book, it would be the interpolation of the subjects of a white, mystified and declining carbon nation, which requires the rebirth of its powers and its defense against non-white people and mainly Muslim people, against what would be considered, what is considered as an invasion. And this is very much a narrative that we see from groups of, uh, such as Generation Identity uh, across Europe that is very much spreading this narrative of we need to stop this in immigration that is perceived as an invasion coming to threaten the European culture, the European heritage, the European civilization. And the other aspect is that the rebirth of the nation would be done through, and that we can see in terms of America, the idea that fossil energies will come and fuel this rebirth of the nation. As you just said, Liz, 
fascism and especially fossil fascism seems to be a very intricate thing to me. And when I first had a short look into your book, I, I thought, oh, that's very interesting because normally you think about fascism and ecology and you think there are all these people who want to protect their homeland. And uh, among these people who want to protect their homeland, there are also some who appear in the ecological movements. So uh, if somebody tells you that there's a book about ecology and fascism, you think in this direction. And then you start of your book with uh, denialism. So people who say there's no climate change and if there is climate change, it's not uh, man-made. And uh, if it's man-made, then you can't do anything about it anyway. Uh, But then your book becomes more and more intricate because you speak about not only about denialism, you speak also about eco-nationalism, so people who want to protect the homeland, who want to protect nature as the living space for, for peoples. You speak also about fossil racism, you speak about what you said, palingenesis, so the rebirth of a nation or to defend Europe against immigration and against the spreading of Islam. You speak about ideology and crisis, so it's, it's a very complex thing. And what I like to understand better is in all this kind of mixture that forms the concept of fossil fascism, what are exactly the, the moments you would say today that are most pressing and the most pushing in the direction of fossil fascism? Lise, you should say something about the situation in France here. Yes, so I can maybe start with that. So, yeah, where to start in France, um, we can see that there is a different narrative because indeed we speak as false fascism as a potential scenario, but uh, there is another one and it is moving away from climate denialism and the scenario is what is what we call the one of green nationalism. So why climate denialist parties and countries say well climate change doesn't exist what matters and what is the real problem is the defense of the nation uh, the defense against immigration climate change is a hoax and uh, it is to divert attention from um, this real problem that is saving our people and nation climate nationalism instead reverses the problem but we will see it has the same line and the same underlying narratives behind it because it says yes climate change exists it is a problem it is threatening our people and our land so the premise to face it and the first uh, the precondition to to face this climate issue is actually to protect the nation and to protect our borders so we can see that it's still defending a very specific idea of what is a nation defined by certain borders and a land, a territory that belongs to a certain people. Because this green nationalist narrative is based on this very specific understanding of what is nature and what is the territory and what is the environment that we actually need to preserve. And to understand that we need to add um, to this framework not only the, the premise of this ethno-nationalist narrative that is spread out throughout far parties uh, around the world, uh, that it is, it is one of the premise of uh, these parties, but um, there is also a very strong idea of ethno-differentialism 
ethno-differentialist uh, paradigm, which is about saying that a specific people has a specific territory and where the people in the territory, they, this environment allows them to produce and reproduce their cultural specificities. And um, in order to uh, preserve these differences, this cultural diversity that is to them as important as the biodiversity and actually more important in some cases as uh, some um, representative of the Rassemblement National, for example, Hervé Juvin, uh, really like to say. This human diversity can only be secured by having borders that prevent different cultural mix to happen. And it is this idea of preserving the environment for the sake of preserving the nation's culture. This is why it says there needs to be borders, because when the FAR talks about preserving uh, the environment, they speak about preserving the national territory, the national environment that is considered as somewhat the natural environment of the, the French case, the French people. And this is to them why uh, real ecology can only be rooted ecology, because they, they think of the people having to be rooted in a specific territory to be able to uh, take care of it. And um, this is what lies behind the new opposition that they want to make, not between left and right, but between the local and the global. So localist versus uh, globalist. And uh, to them, this idea of globalism, international agreements on climate, for example, this is just an excuse from globalists to create some sort of universal global citizen, which is really what they, what they despise, that would be uh, part of this uniformization of cultures. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the, to that, they really oppose this strong localist paradigm and uh, try to blur the lines then between ecology uh, and um, does it belong to the right or to the left? It belongs to none. It's a new opposition that we need to emphasize. So we see that even in a green nationalist um, narrative, the biggest threat remains immigration from non-white people because um, it says that not only it is a cultural threat, but it is also um, an ecological threat. They very much think in this neo-Malthusian uh, paradigm of immigration and like population growth being the biggest threat to the climate, obviously not reflecting on capitalist <laughs> structures uh, and um, as maybe the bigger threat. And obviously they don't see the growth of white population as a threat, but population growth coming from global south countries. They often point out Africa, of course, but also China and India and saying that these are the people coming and taking over our land and immigration is a threat in that sense. So it is very much an ecology of population because this ethno-differentialist paradigm says that different cultures are incompatible with each other. It's not about promoting uh, different identities and a diversity of identities, which is obviously important to do from a more left-wing perspective, but this very idea of incompatibility. And I forgot to mention also um, an important narrative or like in quotation mark theory, conspiracy theory that is behind also this uh, vision of ecology and it is the one of the great replacement so a supposedly uh, ongoing process coordinated by the elites of a replacement of European population by a non-white immigration and the forward groups speak about white genocide that is going on and when one adds the ecology filter onto this kind of narratives, then it results in uh, discourses such as, like uh, Jean-Yves Le Gallou, a, a 
big personality, a very famous personality within the the far right met- metapolitical sphere, who says publicly <laughs> that it's a common knowledge that when immigrants come from Africa, so it is big country Africa, um, once they come to Europe, they adopt a European lifestyle and therefore their CO2 footprint increases uh, significantly. And this is an argument uh, to say that Africans should stay in Africa. So even when the far right seemingly tackles uh, the climate issue and the environmental crisis, uh, the first measures remain around stopping immigration and opposing Islam, which is obviously very much questionable when it comes to measures against climate change. And this can be summarized by the uh, sentence of Rassemblement National's leader, uh, Jordan Bardella, who said two years ago that the best ally of ecology is actually the border. Just... To let me understand what's the trajectory here, if if you make the scenarios. So you think that in France or in other countries, the scenario of fossil fascism is something like the government, the state starts uh, banning Muslim populations, building walls against migration, or even killing non-whites in the end. Is, is, this a, is this the scenario we are going for in order to protect us from the results of climate change? Yeah, well, let me just briefly add, Christian, in response to your question, that I think at some moment in recent in recent years, it has appeared that a country like the U.S. has come farthest down this path of you know the tendencies pointing in the direction of fossil fascism. At other points, it's another, it's a, some European country that seems to have, how shall I put it, uh, degenerated politically in that direction uh, to the greatest extent. A country like Poland, for instance. And right now, what's going on in France is perhaps the most the most frightening because France is such an incredibly important country in Europe. And Le Pen looks like she's she might very well win the presidential election. And, and if she doesn't, if Macron wins again, then it's a Macron that is pretty similar to her in in the critical respect. But I'm I'm prone to say that of the countries that we have studied, Brazil is the one where the far right has made the most devastating damage to natural systems, uh, to the Amazon, obviously, and thereby also to the to the world's climate, and combined this or embedded this within a project of nationalism that is quite scary. Yeah, well, I, I hope not. Uh, but I have to say that uh, there is a very strong rise of the far right in France. And I'm not only speaking about the parliamentary right, but also about just generally the ultra right um, and uh, ultra right groups and ultra right violence. And some of the groups are openly making references to some sort of coming racial uh, war, civil war, and if they are not openly stating it. And we can see this narrative, for example, among some survivalist groups that are uh, not only organizing permaculture farm trainings, but also survival trainings, like going to the woods and like learning how to do foraging, uh, to sleep in the in the wild and um, make fires, and uh, have also this uh, what they call sustainable autonomous bases, uh, where they could retreat in case there's something happening, and this <laughs> something is as much an economic 
crash. They, some of them are preparing for that, but it always has, in this far right sphere, always has also an aspect of preparing uh, to be uh, willing to take the arms one day when it comes that uh, we have to defend ourselves against racialized people, not only the ones coming from recent immigration, but the ones that, who are already there and who are starting to put fires and stuff in um, poor neighborhoods. Like You see a lot of videos like that to create some sort of anxiety around poor neighborhoods in uh, different cities and yet again emphasizing this incompatibility between different people different uh, between different cultures which feeds this narrative of the racial war is inevitable it will arise at some point and one more thing about France why I think it is extremely important as we said to, to see to uh, monitor what's happening in France and uh, it is because I believe and I feel like uh, as the climate crisis accelerates it will become harder hard, and harder to deny it and then at this time adopting a green nationalist narrative will become more tempting especially because the core of this ideology is not to protect the environment as such as in uh, seeing it in a global perspective as in saving the planet it is about saving the environment where the, the culture of a white nation can reproduce so I feel like people will be more and more tempted to hold on to this and to fold onto uh, this core. Just to make clear, we're, we're not suggesting that a, a deepening climate crisis will automatically bring this kind of thing on. There, there's no uh, direct causality from uh, a deepening climate crisis with this very serious impact hitting France or some other European country and the rise of the far right. But the far right will try to make use of these crises. And uh, uh, the, I mean, the, the impacts of, of climate breakdown will bite harder and uh, uh, we, we need to um, sort of make intellectual and political preparations for the, the presence of the far right in such a situation. In your book, More Than One Time, you make the point that, of course, these politics of the far right are no solution to the real crisis. They are more a kind of distraction from the real crisis. So I was wondering, in how far could such a distraction react to the actual crisis? And I was thinking about the example of fascism in history. So the historical fascism in the 20th century was reacting to the crisis. And in the German case, it was reacting to an economic crisis. And of course, there was somehow a solution to the economic crisis by uh, waging war against other European countries, uh, plundering the people you have conquered or plundering the Jewish populace. So in a sense, there was a solution to the underlying crisis, even though it was it was not a real solution in the in sense of tackling this crisis head on. But with regard to the climate crisis, I have difficulties seeing in how far what you said, Andreas, earlier on, in how far going against the immigrants or people who are supposed to be immigrants, even though they live in the country for generations now, in how far this could help with escaping the consequences of climate change? Well, well I think if we stay with the scenario of an adaptation crisis where a country suffers some kind of a very serious impact of global warming, then you could imagine the far-right 
proposing various aggressive political projects as a kind of pseudo solution similar to the the classical German case that you described. So there are some scholars of fascism, one that we put in the book, Timothy Snyder, who has almost copied the German case onto future of rapid warming and uh, speculated on countries engaging in aggressive military conquests and plunder to safeguard scarce resources. I'm not entirely convinced by these scenarios, but uh, obviously you, you can imagine these things happening. For instance, I think what, one of his cases is that uh, you have um, a, a country that, that suffers extreme water scarcity because of, of uh, global warming and then uh, starts invading its neighboring countries to secure access to rivers or something like that. You can also imagine the mass deportation of people defined as non-white as the kind of fascist pseudo-solution to a crisis of tightening resource supplies. There is an, an interesting case right now in Arizona where Republicans are suing the Biden administration because it has allowed in migrants into Arizona that supposedly increase the pressure on the water and other resources of that state that are under pressure from climate change. And that's, that's the kind of thing that you can extrapolate into a scenario where uh, potentially Arizona's water resources are under much heavier pressure right now. And the far right can then propose, well, how are we going to deal with this? Well, let's begin by sending out those excess people who have come here, the Latinos, and then we'll have a greater share left for us white people. I mean, the, these things are not entirely uh, inconceivable, I, I think. Uh, yes, as you said, I, and I want to emphasize that when we speak about green nationalism, about the, some part of the far right acknowledging the climate crisis or like environmental damages at large, we by no means say that this constitutes some sort of solution, because of course, this logic of nationalism in a global crisis that requires to coordinate uh, actions uh, globally, that requires to acknowledge some sort of difference in responsibilities, different in needs also when, it, when um, we look at different countries around the world and uh, what responsibility they have in uh, global emissions, for example. It cannot be done without some sort of global ideology, how to protect the environment as in the planet. And as long as the FARA doesn't uh, propose any uh, radical solutions that are properly ecological, that, is, that are not only focused on immigration, um, then it will never be some sort of solution. Because when it comes to energy, for example, we haven't seen the Rassemblement National strongly advocating for uh, immediate cut in CO2 emissions. They strongly oppose renewable energies and especially wind turbines. They only uh, suggest to invest even more into nuclear power, which also has some ecological issues, obviously. And they don't oppose either to uh, capitalism at large or to, they don't question economic growth, for example. Um, there is a part of the FAR that is anti-consumer society that is definitely uh, proposing, um, uh, promoting degrowth, but it's not the case of the parliamentarian far right. On the contrary, they uh, promote a national capitalism and the reindustrialization of France and so on. So on that note, we also have to keep in mind that even if it is 
different from this other climate denialist narrative that exists somewhere else, uh, green nationalism is still f fully fueled by some sort of denial and uh, maybe a new form of denial, maybe an advanced form of denial, so to say, in the sense that, well, first of all, it still has climate denials in its ranks, but um, also people that can maybe acknowledge global warming without acknowledging that humans, in quotation marks, have um, a strong responsibility uh, in creating it, or but in general, it still really denies the, the real causes of the global warming and also deny what really needs to be done about it. Yes, and that is on the scenario of uh, maybe building walls. We had actually this uh, discussion in another setting recently, and we were wondering if building walls of uh, protecting just journey the nation through the borders, if this can be considered as uh, some sort of adaptation measures um, uh, against uh, climate change in the sense that if we think of the coming climate refugees, if uh, we can consider these methods as some adaptation from from. The far right. I have one further question on the probability of your know, fascist scenarios. Uh, and one point you make in the book as well is that fascism is regularly an alliance with factions of capital. So the argument somehow seems to me that fossil capital, it is capital that is burning coal and oil or, or living on these fuels, that this capital is so important that if it comes really hard for these factions of capital, they can kind of take over the state or give the state to these fascist movements that are rising now in the, or preparing for, for the rise in the far right. But I'm wondering, is the fossil fuel industry, do you think that the fossil industry is still so much in the position to exert such an amount of power? Aren't there not other factions of capital with regard to artificial intelligence, for instance, or other emerging industries or services that are much more powerful and not inclined to do everything just to protect those industries who are living off carbon dioxide? Obviously, I hope that you are right, that the fossil fuel industry is not powerful enough to throw its weight behind the far right and thereby make kind of alliance between nationalists and sections of the capitalist class powerful enough to, to coalesce into something like fascism. I think that the economic and political strength of the fossil fuel industry varies massively between countries. I mean, in some countries, that industry doesn't exist. We don't have it in Sweden. We, we have no, well, we have an international comparison, relatively small oil companies, certainly not capable of affecting the political landscape in our country in any greater sense. But it's very different in the U.S., in Norway, not to mention a number of countries that we have omitted from from study in our book, Australia, Canada, Russia, and so on. Now, if you look at the US, the fossil fuel industry was a central actor in the constitution of Trumpism, the Trump administration. It was a, it was a kind of material backbone of his four years in power. And uh, I think that it is massively more powerful than any kind of section of the capitalist class based on artificial intelligence or anything like that. Obviously, Apple and Microsoft and digital platforms capitalists are not as deeply committed to business as usual on the climate front as these companies are. 
and would not be as aggressive in defending fossil fuels as would ExxonMobil or ConocoPhillips or Chevron and, and all of these companies. I, I wouldn't say that, uh, that they necessarily form a kind of counter-hegemonic block, if you like, within the capitalist class that, that strives to shut down fossil fuels. At least they haven't so far. Maybe they will. Uh, we don't we don't know. Uh, obviously, there can be tensions and, and conflicts within the, the capitalist class when the crisis intensifies. Uh, but I think it would be unwise to discount the scenario of a very aggressive defense of fossil fuel interests, given everything they have done over the past three decades to sustain business as usual. And this includes teaming up with the far right, sabotaging negotiations in the UN, spreading misinformation, and haven't really shied from any methods to defend themselves. And we see in a number of cases pretty close political alliances between the fossil fuel industry and the far right. And I think uh, the, the concern here should be that when the privileges of these companies are questioned to the extent that there is a demand for them to go out of business completely and, for instance, be, be nationalized and transformed into something completely different, then these companies won't go down without a fight. I mean, just take, take the case of Total in France. It's the single largest private company in France, an oil and gas company that keeps on expanding around the world and that you know, we can't have as that kind of company. It has to cease existing. Uh, and I doubt that it will voluntarily just uh, go out of existence. That doesn't mean that you have to think of this playing out as in total funding a coup d'etat or, you know, installing some kind of a direct militia to protect its interests or something like that. But there, there could be other kinds of deep currents within society where, for instance, the, the interests of the far right in France align with Total when the crisis deepens uh, and so on and so forth. Liz, you want, want to add something? Yeah, maybe just one one thing drawing on what you what you said, Andreas, uh, putting face-to-face -face Macron and Le Pen. Um, I think we should remain very attentive to this very neoliberal teaming up with large uh, sectors and segments of capital, uh, with multinationals, with finance, while not doing anything concrete about, about climate change and at the same time implementing Islamophobic measures and policies on, in, in France with, with the figures of someone like Macron and to actually keep in mind what kind of policy is it in front of this our concept of fossil fascism can this become fossil fascism and not draw a line at only what is the far right and draw a line around that and not look outside of the box you are listening to critical theory in context My guests today are Andreas Malm and Lise Benoit from the Zetkin Collective. We are talking about their recently published book, White Skin, Black Fuel, on the danger of fossil fascism, which came out with Verso this year. It is the first systematic inquiry into the political ecology of the far right with regard to the climate crisis. Analyzing the conjuncture of climate change and nationalist politics in various European countries, as well as the US and Brazil. The history of fossil capital has been for some time now one of the central concerns of Andreas Malm's work. In his book, entitled Fossil Capital, The Rise of Steam Power and the Roots of Global Warming, which was published in 2016, Andreas traces the historical rise of steam power 
and shows that the development of this technology cannot be understood without taking into consideration the dynamics of class struggle. Since the main reason why the source of power became dominant in production was that it enabled superior control over labor. Andreas has also been a fellow at our center last year and at that time wrote one of his other most recent books, Corona, Climate, Chronic Emergency, War Communism in the 21st Century. Rahel Jäger spoke with him about the main thesis of this book in one of our online events. You can find a video recording of this discussion on our website as linked in the show notes. In the conversation, Andreas explained that the origin and proliferation of COVID-19 are tightly intertwined with global capitalist production and that politics will have to shift from addressing the symptoms to focusing on the root causes of the problem, the society-nature relation under capitalism. The dangers of an authoritarian response to the crisis produced by the society-nature relation are the topic of today's conversation on the danger of fossil fascism. And to this, we return now for the second part of our conversation with Andreas Malm and Lise Benoit. To get into the second part of our conversation, I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about the group and the project that is connected with the name Zetkin Collective. I know Clara Zetkin from my childhood. She was the titular saint of places, parks and streets. She was even on a banknote, the only woman, by the way, which made it on a banknote in the GDR. But I only know her as this old lady with white hair, looking friendly from this banknote, but don't know much about her work. So it's like with all the other saints of socialism, which are below the Holy Trinity of Marx, Engels and Lenin, that you don't know what they exactly did. Clara Zetkin is connected to feminism in the socialist movement somehow, but nothing in particular comes to my mind. While reading your book, I learned a little bit about Clara Zetkin's position on fascism, and I think it would be interesting for us to know how your group started, why it's no coincidence that you choose the name of Zetkin, and what is the goal and the work of your group? Yeah, so our collective, which is a group of 20 people, students, activists, scholars, working on the political ecologies of the far right, and we, we, we formed the in and around Lund University in, in 2018, we we had to decide upon a name, and we we chose Zetkin partly because it's a cool name; it sounds cool, uh, but that she really is a model of an early anti-fascist uh, analyst. She's also obviously a feminist icon because she was a founder of the International Women's Day, and she was an anti-fascist all the way into uh, to her death, uh, which was just after the Nazi seizure of power in, in Germany. So, and obviously it gestures at the need for, for anti-fascist politics to also be anti-capitalist and to, to be uh, attentive to the links between the far right and uh, capitalist politics, not in any crude or vulgar sense, uh, but with the kind of sophistication that she pioneered. 
Yeah, so one thing that we take from Clara Zetkin's legacy is uh, this idea of keeping track, of writing down and of monitoring what is going on within the far right. And this is what we try to do with the Zetkin Collective, monitoring what the far right is saying about climate and the environment. And the idea is to have some sort of database as well that can help us to monitor different trends, who are the different actors, and use that to analyze the different developments in the context of the fascization of the society. It seems to me that your concept of fascism is uh, strongly influenced by a certain theoretical strand of uh, ideology theory, uh, and especially by the ideology theory which was forwarded by Louis Althusser, the French philosopher. And I have to say again, and we already touched upon this point, that your book has a very intricate argument. So it starts out with a description of ideology that seems to be rather traditional and maybe simple, a bit in the direction that uh, Andreas mentioned, namely that you have um, denialist think tanks and partisans which are sponsored by the fossil fuel industry. And then later on, you seem to shift from this idea of ideology as being just the propagation of blatant lies uh, in the interest of some factions of capital. Later on, the picture becomes more and more complex and it goes about the re reproduction of ideas in society, which comes with acting according to special norms and values by following certain practices. And I was wondering while reading your book, uh, and I can recommend Uh, any reader of your book to read it really from page one to the end in order to see all the complexity that you put into your argument. Uh, I was wondering how do you relate these kinds of ideology, so ideology as a conscious deceit on the one hand and the more practice-oriented imminent concept of ideology, how they are related uh, in your view? Yeah, this is a wonderful question, and I personally have to say that I'm heartened by your emphasis on the complexities of this book, because I think that the phenomenon we're grappling with is complex and contradictory, and we are not making any pretension to having come up with an exhaustive inquiry or with ready-made answers. Many of our interpretations are provisional and to some extent speculative and in the, in the nature of hypothesis. And we're studying the far right and the climate crisis. And the far right is a political force that shifts shape and form and position. And it is likely to continue to do so. So we're, we're aiming at a target that is moving. So therefore, the, the, the study has to be complex. Now, on the, on the question of ideology, again, I think our use of theories of ideology is syncretic and eclectic. And we draw on uh, different traditions and try to combine them. And uh, the sort of classical, uh, more orthodox idea of ideology as the lies of the dominant classes to protect their interests, that model is often too crude for reality, but it, it actually is quite accurate in the case of deliberate misinformation about the existence of global warming that corporations engaged in to extremely damaging effect in the 1990s. And then they began to move towards uh, greenwashing and things like that, largely. But denial lived on and arguably became more politically powerful when it migrated into the nationalist far right. But yeah, exactly as you say, later on in the book, we try to look at the deeper uh, material and historical roots of this 
phenomenon of the kind of uh, white nationalist commitment to fossil fuels and their technologies. And then it makes much more sense to operate with, or perhaps use another strand within Althusser's thought, where ideology is really seen as embedded in material practices themselves, rather than an institutional uh, propagation or projection of ideas. I, I have to say that I think that to try to grapple with this phenomenon from different angles, we need different concepts and theories of ideology and, and politics to, to make it work. I was very intrigued by your idea and also by the history you paint in your book, how fossil fuels, the extraction of fossil fuels, the machines driven by fossil fuels somehow relate to the idea of white supremacy. And exactly in, in this kind of thinking, uh, in this artisanal kind of thinking about ideology, that there are some practical aspects of our daily lives that bring with it uh, this uh, this kind of thinking. And of course, we know that in, in all the, the Western industries, people are very proud of, of what they can produce and how efficient and effective this is. And uh, if you speak uh, with Germans about cars and, uh, and their ability to build uh, the best cars, uh, Everybody can understand how this this combination of fossil fuel and uh, feeling a kind of national supremacy works. But then I was wondering in the trajectory of the book, if you speak about the imminent danger of fossil fascism becoming now a political power, uh, I was looking for, for your answer. What makes people susceptible to the far right and to the promises of fossil fascism today? And The point I found in your book was that people want to drive away from spots where migrants live and want to escape public transport and, and live in the suburbs. And that sounds to me a bit like a very highly speculative theory. <laughs> well, it is a speculative theory, but, but the far right is sometimes very explicit. Uh, I think in Sweden and Germany, for instance, about being the, the, the defender of people who have used the car as a means of escaping um, immigrants. That's certainly only one source of support for the far right, and there are many others. Uh, I think one that perhaps we haven't stressed in the book is that quite frequently the messages coming from what is perceived as environmentalism seem to go against the material interests of the working class, or at least there there is a perception that all of these environmental stuff, all this talk about climate is something that middle class people with high education are trying to impose on us workers. They want to rob us of our steaks, they want to take away our cars, they want to close our coal mines. And insofar as you have that kind of discourse established, there is, of course, a risk that you some, some working class voters end up voting for the far right and supporting the far right under the perception that all of this green bullshit is just one more attack on us ordinary white working people. I think that's that's one aspect of, of popular support for the far right. There are many, many others, and it's it's clearly not reducible to to the car and its role in, in spatial segregation. But I do think the car is important, and I, I do think it has importance in, in cultures of white supremacy. There was the latest attack of a of a driver smashing his car into a Black Lives Matter demonstration in Minneapolis, and uh, one demonstrator was killed. This kind of, you know, white supremacist violence by means of the car driving into to people marching for Black Lives is clearly something that's 
that we will see more of. Yeah, so I came across something else, maybe indirectly connected to, to white supremacy when you were speaking about the cars. This is definitely something that the Rassemblement National, and especially now with the regional elections, that they have been uh, strongly Uh, supporting uh, cars and the use of, of the cars and opposing uh, coming measures that will ban some diesel cars and some old cars to enter into certain urban areas, for example. And this is definitely done in this mindset of we, the people, we in the rural areas, we need our cars to go to work. Just re-emphasizing this idea that ecology comes from this unrooted globalist people living in cities, urban, this urban ecology, and they perceive this as And, they, and describe as a punitive ecology that, again, the punition falls onto uh, rural people. And, well, of course, this there is a real debate around the use of the car in rural areas and different needs, obviously, where different people live. But this wasn't done, I have to emphasize that it wasn't done in relation to uh, supporting uh, building public transport, investing in public transports and so on. So there was no real coherence behind this. But so there is this strong idea of not being able to give up on what they see as some privileges and defending these material privileges because obviously what happens if there are consequences from these privileges that happen um, somewhere else in the world, it doesn't touch them at all. And the car is definitely one symbol of these material privileges. Yeah, but couldn't we describe it also differently? The change away from fossil fuel industry is a deep transformation of society and Uh, of course, far-right parties are against all kinds of transformations, social, cultural, uh, even uh, economic transformations. But this kind of transformation, of course, seems to me a problem for, uh, for people living in the countryside, for instance, if they don't have any kind of public transport. And of course, these are problems which needed to be addressed. But as you said quite rightly and um, You make this point very strong. At least this seems to be one punchline of your book. At the heart of fascism is the suppression of non-whites. And then the white supremacy, this is a result of using the power of fossil fuel, as you say. Uh, but if you take this kind of racist thing, I always have difficulties to see how the need for accommodation and making this uh, this transformation work for all people in society, how this then relates to racism in a kind of seemingly necessary or seemingly natural way. So maybe that's more my question. I, I, well, I, I don't think that it comes naturally, but I think the far right <laughs> mobilizes its resources uh, that come from racist structures And they try to refine these resources and, and sell them to the political moment, if you like, update them and, and uh, uh, capitalize on them and promote a particular perception of the crisis. So nothing of this comes naturally. It's all about political battles. I mean, the, the, to, to stick with this, with the struggle around the car, I mean, the, the car in France has been a, a subject of intense contestation if, in the last years with the yellow vest uh, uprising being partly a response to that. So there's nothing natural about Rassemblement National monopolizing a kind of uh, response to that problem. It's just that they do it in their own way, and when, when it's the far right doing it, it's always tied to white ethno-nationalism, because that is the core of what the far right is in our countries. 
Yeah, so on a more practical note regarding that, so I said earlier that uh, this opposition to the car wasn't done with while simultaneously promoting public transport. And there was even a debate recently for the regional elections where Jordan Bardella shared a video of himself, so the number two of the party and also the head of the list for the elections in the Paris region, where he even shamed the, the idea of having free public transports, which could be a social ecological measure. And he said, again, bringing the debate onto immigration, saying that this measure is already happening, but only immigrants are benefiting from this because they do benefit from some sort of help to go around what they do their, their paperwork. That, that's an extremely typical rhetorical twist from the far right. Let me just say that we touched here on the rural-urban divide, and it's something that we don't really emphasize so much in the book. But I think that one of the most consistent patterns and one of the most important predictors of far-right support across Europe and in the U.S. as well is where you live, if it's in the countryside or in the city. I mean, in country after country after country, the far-right is very significantly stronger in the countryside and weaker in big cities. And that's a real challenge for anti-racist and anti-fascist forces in the in the coming years, I think. Yeah, let, let me uh, stress this point a bit further, uh, this point of racism as, as, as the heart of uh, far-right and uh, fascist politics. Um, you seem to suggest that uh, the fossil fuel crisis somehow not only is something where the far right or, or the fascist movements can adopt their old program with or give it a new a new outlook, uh, but that there's somehow even a transformation. Or did I get you wrong? What kind of transformation? A transformation of the racism of the underlying racism. Uh, to give to give you an example, what what made me think this is. Uh, that you uh, make a reference to the oil crisis. And the, the oil crisis uh, was related to the Iranian revolution. And uh, the Iranian revolution was the first time that uh, an explicit uh, um, Islamist government came to power, uh, reformed uh, or remodeled society, uh, uh, killed all the leftist people. But in your in your account, it seems as if this was a point when racism changed from being the colonial racism it always has been into some kind of new form of racism, which you, you then, um, uh, which then goes by the name of Islamophobia. And I was wondering if this is if if I got the, the thesis right. Well, my own personal view of this is not that the oil crisis transformed contemporary modern racism for good, but that it was a kind of inflection point or an important moment in the constitution of present-day Islamophobia. I don't think that racism works in the way that you have, you know, first anti-Semitism and then or in parallel you have colonial racism and then Islamophobia. I mean, racism is, a, to me, a far more mobile, adaptable, and if, if you will, productive uh, way of relating to other people. So it can adopt uh, new enemies, and it can combine old enemies with new ones, and yeah, be, be extremely versatile and ecumenical in its attack on different groups of people. So, uh, I mean, the, the Sweden Democrats might have had their focus, to, to use the far-right 
part in, in my own country, might have had their focus on, on Muslims for a long time, then speaking more generally about immigrants, uh, but then, you know, attacks on Jews pop up here and there, and attacks on Sami people, and uh, I think that uh, during the last one and a half year of, of the pandemic, you've seen the resurgence of some kinds of uh, anti-Chinese, anti-Asian racism. So racism doesn't stand still. Uh, I think we, we quote Malcolm X at some point that racism is like a Chevrolet. There is a new model every year. And racism obviously evolves in response to events such as the oil crisis or this pandemic or whatever impacts we'll have from global warming coming next. So it's a very multifaceted, unfortunately, force in our, in our, in our time, I would say. Okay, then let me come to my last question. And it's back to ideology in a sense, because if you are right and all the thinking about fossil fuels and white supremacy and everything is so deeply embedded into practices, and it's not just, as it's even in the beginning of your book, that just some people who are incredibly rich try to advertise uh, false ideas, which they know they are false and which you then could counter by speaking out the truth and uh, saying it as loud as you can. If it's so embedded into daily practices and if it's such a moving target, as you said, but still coming back to the same point, what would you say is the strategy to best oppose it apart from writing a book as yours in order to make us prepared intellectually to see what's coming and what the dangers are? Yes, maybe I can start by emphasizing uh, one of the other key messages of the book. And it is that we obviously need to join forces between anti-racist, anti-fascist and climate movements um, around the theme of climate justice and in opposition to this common enemy that is the far right. And then also one more thing in, in, in relation to the previous question I was thinking about that it is important that in front of this strong fear and anxiety climate that is arising around and within and spread by all this met metapolitical sphere uh, of the far right. And when I say metapolitical, I'm speaking of, uh, of uh, everything that is outside parliamentary politics. So all these media channels, whether it is YouTube channels, some uh, radios, some uh, journals, some newspapers, some, uh, uh, well, anything you can imagine, telegram groups, obviously, that are leading this cultural battle and spreading all different kinds of completely wrong information and completely wrong theories, whether it is about <laughs> immigration and the climate, climate change, for example, uh, saying that climate refugees are contributing to the rise of CO2 emissions by traveling to Europe, for example. We really need to oppose these narratives and deconstruct them. So expose, oppose and deconstruct them that is also very important i'd like maybe to point out that one of the things that we don't have in the book is a discussion of strategies for people who don't like the far right and who who care about climate action we we don't really discuss what to do about it and i i can honestly say that i don't have a recipe to share if i had one i would i would happily share it but the struggle against the far right in my own country is not going well i mean the sweden democrats we used to fight them in the streets in the mid 1990s when they were still neo-nazi skinheads that you know that's Unlike most of the far-right parties in Europe, our far-right party descends straight from the neo-Nazi movement. There's a, there's a lineage that you can follow from the National Socialists in the interwar period uh, through the various post-war survival sects down to the Sweden Democrats and now 
they are the third largest party in our country and will most likely be kingmakers after the next election in the next year. And they, they've increased their vote share for the last eight elections and just go from strength to strength, it appears. So nothing that the left has tried so far has worked. And I don't know exactly what will work. <laughs> I think that if we put this in relation to the climate crisis, one thing that we need to stress again and again is that the far right has no no real solution to the climate crisis and it really doesn't have any politics <laughs> that uh, that can address the, the causes, the problems at all. Just as Lise outlined, even in the case of the French far right, which is supposedly the one that has, you know, recognized the climate crisis, it, when, when it comes down to the concrete stuff of politics, they're defending the car aggressively and certainly not proposing to nationalize Total or doing anything about the real sources of, uh, of climate crime uh, coming from France. And I mean, if people are rational, this argument should be effective, but if there's one takeaway from our book, it is perhaps that we shouldn't count on the rationality of people in the climate crisis. And the deeper it gets, the more irrationalities we'll see in society rather than uh, less of them. So uh, that was perhaps a very pessimistic uh, argument. But I mean, yeah, we, we have to bank on, on, uh, on the imperative for climate action, sapping the support of the far right, uh, that we have to, to try to work for that somehow. Yeah, another thing I also would like to mention that uh, there is another thing that we need to really be aware of and uh, continue monitoring. And it is this in intersection between anti-capitalism, degrowth narratives and the far right, because, as I said, this is not present in uh, within the Rassemblement National, but it is very much present in this metapolitical sphere um, and uh, key personalities uh, Uh, really promote degrowth and there is a very strong cooptation of key ecological terms, even degrowth and localism in itself. And I think it is important to reclaim those words and to also make it clear what it means and what it doesn't and remain careful when we use the words the far right speaks about nature in a way that nature is some sort of base for uh, society, uh, therefore natural naturalizing social processes um, which allows conservative visions uh, and views on society. Society. So um, I think it is important to, to reclaim these words and uh, make sure that the far right cannot appropriate this vocabulary very easily. And another thing that I think is very key and important, and this is precisely what we are trying to do with the collective, and it is to bridge academia and activism. And uh, this is why we have both profiles in our collective. And uh, this is also what we try to do when we organize the political ecology of the FAR conference and um, the first one at Lund University, and we will organize a new one. So I also think like communication between those two worlds is uh, key to fighting the far right. That sounds exciting. Good luck with it. And yeah, there's always the need to find strategies. And it's not only a need for you, it's a need for all of us. It's great to have your book, which informs us so interestingly about all the aspects and developments. It's really incredibly rich uh, book, and I can really recommend everyone to read it. So it was great. Uh, to have both of you here, Lise and Andreas. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Christian. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for wonderful comments. And uh, I look forward to discussing these things more. This was Critical Theory in Context. Our guests today 
Der Andreas Malm and Lise Benoit from the Zetkin Collective. If you are interested in further analysis on the climate crisis and haven't done so yet, you should check out the first episode of this podcast, a conversation between Rahel Yegi and Nancy Fraser about a structural relation between ecological destruction and capitalism. Also, some of the other more recent events of our center might be of interest to you. We recently published two videos from our summer school on Foundations of Solidarity. The roundtable discussion with prominent voices, among them Sabine Haag, Stefan Nessenich and Asad Haider, and a resume with three excellent summaries. And we also continued our series Conversations on Socialism with Christina Berry, Axel Honneth and Baskar Sunkara, who discussed the contours of a new socialism for a new century in another online event. You find all these videos on our website and in our YouTube channel as linked in the show notes. Finally, yet importantly, I want to draw your attention to the next upcoming event of ours. We will present the three German online panels on the Global Forum on Democratizing Work. The online panels will take place on the 5th, 6th and 7th October. Check out our website for more information and updates. In the show notes, you find a link to the manifesto Work, Democratize, Decommodify, Decarbonize, which started this campaign in May 2020. And the second one to the recording of an online discussion on the initiative that took place in November last year. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on all the major platforms and to stay up to date with all our events on the Humanities and Social Change Center in Berlin, sign up for our newsletter on the website www.criticaltheoryinberlin.de. My name is Christian Schmidt. Thank you for listening. Take care. I hope you will join us again next time. Bye-bye.